Till he returns or calls me home. Whose power? The power of Christ. Here I will stand. What a great introduction for our topic tonight. I have the great privilege. I was assigned this topic. It's like I won the jackpot. Christ alone. Solus Christus. What a great joy for me to teach this tonight. Uh, We have handouts in the back. If anyone would like one of those, feel free to grab it. Don't be ashamed if you didn't get one. They're in the back there. It was December of 2009. We had just taken Whitney for her eye visit there in Thessaloniki. You guys might remember she had that eye injury and we drove to Greece like 17 times. Um, It was December. It was cold. And we're driving from Greece back to Albania. We're somewhere in the middle of Albania. It's about midnight. The the, The roads are icy and there's light snow. I remember driving on this two-lane road. And in Albania, it's kind of crazy. It's like the Wild West. Whatever goes, goes. I'm driving slowly. Again, I'm from California. I know how to drive in snow. Right? I'm driving up this hill, and I get to the top of the hill, and lo and behold, what is there? A big rig semi parked right in my lane at the top of the hill. I couldn't see it until I got up there. Both shoulders absolutely packed with snow. I did the only thing that I possibly could, swerved into the oncoming lane. It's a very Albanian thing to do. Only to find a semi coming up the other side directly at us. That's right. I began to tap my brakes. Again, I know how to, how to slow the car in snow. I began to tap my brakes and slowly try to steer to the side. Nothing happens. My steering wheel was unresponsive. My brakes turned our car into one giant Toyota sled. In a moment of desperation, I did the only thing left to me. The one thing you're never supposed to do on ice. I grabbed that parking brake and jammed it as hard as I could. Instantly, our car begins to spin like a top. The car is spinning. The girls are in the back seat watching Scooby-Doo. I mean, you can picture this. The car is spinning, and they're like, (laughs) Scooby-Doo. And in that moment, Shelly, at the top of her voice, begins to scream, Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jesus! Over and over and over again. Well, thankfully... The spinning motion was enough to push our car. Instead of going straight into the car, it began to spin, and we went to the side, and we ended up hitting backwards the other side of the snowbank, seconds before the truck goes by. (sighs) Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, why did Shelley cry out? To Jesus for help. Did she not realize who was behind the wheel? 
I mean, notice she didn't yell this out. Save me, Chris, my professionally trained driving husband. I mean, I was a cop trained by race car drivers. She didn't yell out for me. See, Shelley was raised in the church. She was saved at a young age. She was taught to know and live the scriptures all of her life. Her faith, her very hope was rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was her first, her greatest, and her only hope. And the terrifying circumstance of rapidly impending death revealed what or who was the true anchor of her faith and hope. Now let us travel back to July 2nd, 1505, where we find a 21-year-old Martin Luther fighting his way through a severe thunderstorm on the road to Erfurt. A lightning bolt strikes the ground nearby. He is absolutely terrified. And in his moment of desperation, in his moment of terror, who does he cry out to? Who does he cry out to? Who is the true anchor of faith and hope for young Martin? Do you remember what he said? Help me, Saint Anne. I will become a monk. Help me, Saint Anne. Help me. And so this brilliant young man who at that time was set to become a lawyer. I mean, this guy was brilliant. He was set to become a lawyer against his father's wishes, fulfilled his vow, gave away all of his possessions, and entered the monastic life in 1507. Martin Luther became a monk, thanks to the help of St. Anne. See, God used a lightning bolt to reveal who or what Luther trusted in which at that time was St. Anne, his family patron saint. Well, in order for us to understand why Luther responded this way, I mean, this was normal back then, I think it's helpful to get some, some context to better understand the religious climate that eventually led to the Reformation. Again, this series, we're looking at the five solas, but remember, they came out of a, a climate, an environment, a religious environment of that day. I don't know if you know this, but Martin Luther's father was a miner. I mean, not like a small person, like a juvenile. I'm talking about the one that digs in the earth, you know, the hat, the the pickaxe. He was a miner. Well, guess who St. Anne was? The patron of miners. Martin Luther probably grew up in his home praying to St. Anne, who purportedly was the mother of the Virgin Mary. So when they needed help, when they needed blessing, when they needed healing, who did they pray to? Who did they cry out to? The dead, supposedly mother of the Virgin Mary. The church during Lutheran's day was inundated with beliefs and traditions. I know Ken talked a little bit about this three weeks ago in the opening message. It was inundated with with these beliefs and traditions established by popes And the councils of the church, which focused on these man-made rituals and empty religion. In fact, Mary and the saints, not only did they get prayed to, but they were honored. In fact, the, the Catholic church calls it, we venerate them. They venerate them. 
the saints. They pray to them. Hence Luther's cry to St. Anne for deliverance. Not Christ, not Christ alone, but the saints. Again, Christ was re-sacrificed during every Eucharist, every Mass. So again, we call it the Lord's Table, what we did last Sunday, where we take the bread and the wine. The Catholic Church and the church back in Luther's day, they called it the Eucharist or Mass, where they basically believe that the physical bread, the physical wine or grape juice actually became spiritually, somehow mystically, the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And every time they had Mass, they were literally eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus, re-sacrificing Christ every time they had Mass. Of course, that denies that Christ's finished work on the cross was enough. The Roman Catholic Church had a rotten theological core which led to corruption. It led to greed within its ranks. If you do any kind of study of church history between 1200 and 1500, everyone, there's a reason they call it the Dark Ages, the Medieval Ages. The church was no different. It was rotten to the core. Hence the selling of indulgences as a means of reducing one's punishment in purgatory. In fact, Many historians believe that if you've ever been to Rome, that St. Peter's Basilica, it's a beautiful, we've been there, it's a beautiful church. That was probably built by selling indulgences. Because people thought that they could either help themselves or a departed loved one get further out of this, this intermediate place called purgatory, somewhere between life and eternity, where they were literally punished until their, their sin and the guilt of their sin was taken away. And so, that's what they believed. Again, Ken already shared this quote, Johann Tetzel's quote, but it's worth repeating as it demonstrates just how a rotten theological core infected the church with materialism. Tetzel preached, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Put your money in the basket, and in will go to heaven. You, sir, I know how wicked and evil you are. You're going to be there a long time. A little bit more, please. Click, click, click. Okay. You're safe, at least for now. Can you imagine? This is the environment that Luther grew up in. And what was the heart of this rotten theological core? Well, it's as simple as the word and. And. You see, if we were to sum up the decisive issue of the Protestant Reformation, it would be this. How can sinful man and sinful woman be made right before a holy God? Did you get that? How can sinful man and sinful woman be made right before a holy God? The Roman Catholic Church held that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Did you hear what I just said? You're like, wait a minute, that's what I believe. I believe salvation is by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. So do we believe the same thing? Well, this is where the Catholic Church adds one little word. The Latin word et. Et. Which simply means in English, and. 
How can sinful man be made right before a holy God? Well, simple, the Roman Catholic Church would say, and still does say. It's Christ and baptism and church membership and indulgences and the Mass and confession of sins to a priest, and the treasury of merit, and last rites, and prayer to saints, and purgatory, and confirmation, and so on and so forth. It's Christ and all these things. Now on the other side of the debate, we have the reformers. And Ken talked about them two weeks ago. He highlighted them in their life. The reformers replaced the word and with alone. In Latin, et became sola. That's why we talk about the five solas. Alone, alone, alone. It's not Christ and, it's Christ alone. And the reformers all spoke with one bold voice from the very word of God. That salvation is in Christ alone. Amen? In Christ alone. And so the Reformation was truly about recovering the one true gospel. And Christ alone is at the very heart of every other sola. Because the Reformers said this, By Scripture alone, we find that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, given to unworthy sinners by, what? Grace alone, all to what? The glory of God alone. You see how Christ alone, solus Christus, is at the very center. Because what does Scripture point to? What is it the words of? It's, it's Christ. This is who Christ was, and this is who God is, and this is how you can know him. And what does faith point to? What is it rooted in? Faith by itself is just empty religion. If faith is not rooted in Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's just empty. Faith points to Christ. It's rooted in Christ. And how does God give us grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ? It's beautiful. So Rome said that salvation is in Christ and while the reformers standing on scripture alone, which Ken talked about last week, said salvation is in Christ alone. Period. So my purpose tonight is to help us to understand and appreciate this key biblical truth of Christ alone. And for two reasons. I'm just going to tell you my purpose up front. Two reasons. Number one, first, so that we would make sure that we are not clinging to religion. We're not clinging to good works or any other person or thing, but to Christ alone as our only hope for salvation. I'm not naive enough to think that there, that there might not be somebody in here that is saying Christ and this message is for you. But secondly, so that we will grow to more fully understand how this simple truth should encourage us to draw near to Christ alone for forgiveness and hope and endurance in the race that God has set before us. My hope is that this message, coming away with a high and holy view of who our Lord and Savior is, would energize us and, and revitalize us and when we're discouraged and downtrodden and when we're tempted and afraid that we would cry out, God save me through Christ. Christ alone. Well, to help us accomplish this, I want to 
spend the rest of our time together tonight looking at what the Reformers, and even our own church, means when we talk about Christ alone. When we say solus Christus, Christ alone, here's what we mean. We mean that Christ is the only Savior. We mean that Christ is the only sacrifice. And we mean that Christ is the only mediator. And I'm truly grateful to Terry Johnson. Uh, I totally stole this outline from him in his book. Uh, it was a phenomenal outline. Just a great way to talk about this topic. You guys should get the book. It's a, it's, he's just defending traditional Protestantism. Um, and I just want to warn you. Anytime you talk about Christ alone, there's a lot of theology in this message. And so I'm going to try to keep it simple. I'm going to try to illustrate it and explain it. There's going to be some technical parts. So stick with me. If you have questions, come up and ask me afterwards. I'd be happy to, to explain, especially if I'm not clear. So first of all, when we are talking about Christ alone, first what we mean, what the Reformers meant, is that he is the only Savior. Turn with me to John 14, 6. John 14, 6. This, word, this, uh, this verse we know very well. Again, remember the context as you turn to John, John 14, 6. Jesus reminds the disciples that he is soon going to heaven where he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to come back for them. And then in verse 5, Thomas wants to know, well, Lord, how do we get there? What is the way? Because Jesus had already told Peter that they can't follow him until afterward. That's back in chapter 13, verse 36. Thomas wants to know, how do we get there? What's the way? Notice Jesus' response. And particularly the definite articles that we see in this text. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is not a Savior among many. Jesus is not simply showing the way to others. Well, there it is. It's over there. There's the way. He is the Savior, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16. And first, he states this truth positively. Notice what he says. He says, I am. I am the one and only way, truth, and life. I am. What is he saying? It's exactly what John said. Jesus alone is the door. Jesus alone is the good shepherd in John 10. Jesus alone is the bread of life. In John 6, Jesus alone is the living water in John 7. And through this simple pronoun, I, Christ declares salvation is not found in any other thing or any other person. It's not found in a church by following a set of rules or church membership. It's not found in the baptistry. Well, if I can can just believe in Jesus and then get baptized, I'm in. It's not found in the offering box. Do you think there's people in the church today that think they are buying their way into heaven by giving to Jesus? Absolutely, just like in Luther's day. It's not found in some fancy church program designed to make unbelievers like church again. Just turn on the TV. We have local churches here in the greater Houston area. Their whole philosophy of church ministry is all about saying Jesus plus blessing. Jesus plus or and happiness. 
Jesus alone doesn't sell today, does it? Why not? It's offensive. It's intolerant. It's hard. It's messy, as we're going to see. It's not found in any other man-made religion. It's not found in the Pope. It's not found in Muhammad. It's not found in Buddha. It's not found in Joseph Smith. It's not found in your mom or dad. All those years growing up at MacArthur's church, my faith was attached to the faith of my mom and my dad. It was Jesus plus whatever my mom and dad believe. It's not any other person. Jesus says, I am. It's only in the person of Jesus Christ. There is not one drop of saving grace outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he says it positively. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then he says it negatively. Notice what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only access to the Father. Why? Because he is the only one from the Father, the very truth of God. Isn't that what John 1 says? John 1.14. And the Word became what? Flesh. And what did the Word become flesh do? It dwelt among us. It came from heaven to earth. It lived among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth because he was from God the Father. But he wasn't just the very truth of God. He was also the very life of God, John three fifteen, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And of course, what does John 8, 32 tell us? What does truth do? It sets us free. And that's exactly what Christ does. Jesus is essentially saying, I am the only way to be reconciled to God. There is no other way. It's not Christ and following the Ten Commandments, the golden rule, the sacraments, which is what the Roman Catholic Church calls the, the sacrament of marriage and the sacrament of mass and the sacrament of confession to a priest. They have seven of them. It's not Jesus plus the sacraments. The way to God is only through Christ alone. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, how dedicated you are in your religious observance. If you add anything to faith alone in Christ alone, then you are rejecting the very words of Christ himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And this idea is repeated in, in Acts 4.12. Turn over there with me, Acts 4.12. In fact, I, I thought about just teaching this text tonight. Acts 4.12, there's a lot to unpack. I, I can't unpack it all. Acts 4.12, Peter says this, And there is salvation in who? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And must we be saved? Absolutely. Parents, we understand that, don't we? Your kid comes out of the womb and it's like a little rebel and sinner. And what happened? You obviously got this from your mother's side. Where did this come from? No, no, no. What do you mean no? How about yes? No, mine. We're sinners. We must be saved. We need to be saved. 
And Peter says there is salvation in no one else. No one else. Notice Peter says there is salvation. What tense is that? Does he say there was salvation, but sorry, you missed it. Does he say there will be salvation? What does he say? Present tense. Continuous action. When is salvation? Salvation is now. It's here. In Christ. In no other name but Jesus. And it's not that we have to work up to salvation through faith in Christ and good works. Christ, because of his finished work on the cross, is offering this salvation now to those who would repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Why? Because he alone is our Savior. You know, let me ask you tonight, who is your Savior? Who are you clinging to? Who or what is your faith rooted in, anchored in? What are you trusting in to save you? Because Jesus says, there is no other way but through me. Is it tied to a prayer? Is it tied to a deed? Well, I prayed that prayer five years ago. But yet you're not living for Christ alone. Is it tied to a favorite preacher? Well, I believe what that preacher believes. Jesus and that preacher. Is it a thing? Is it a church? Is it a religion? Is it external, empty, or is it Christ alone? You see, Christ alone means that he is the only Savior. But secondly, it means that he is the only sacrifice. If we want to understand what the Reformers and what our church means when we talk about Christ alone, we have to understand that it means that he is the only sacrifice. He is the only Savior, absolutely. Then it is his death on the cross which provides the only sacrifice that can pay the debt of our sin. Now follow this biblical logic, okay? Put on your thinking caps with me. Follow this. Because God is a holy God. Is God holy? Absolutely. He cannot allow his great love and mercy to overlook sin. As if, oh, well, I love you and I'm I'm just so full of mercy toward you. I get it. You guys are just knuckleheads and you just keep sinning. And, you know, I'm just going to turn my back on that and overlook it. See, his divine love cannot simply overlook sin and, and, and pretend his anger and his wrath just disappeared toward it. If that happened, what would happen to God and his character? What other attribute would that affect? His, his immutability, his, his unchangeableness, his holiness. How about his justice? Is our God a just God? A righteous God? Absolutely. He's righteous and holy. And holy. So he can't allow his great love and mercy to simply overlook sin as if God's love simply canceled out his divine hatred for sin. Again, Ephesians 2, 3, talking to Christians saying, you were children of wrath. That's who you were outside of Christ, apart from Christ, with Christ and. You were children of wrath. Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. 
I'll never forget the first time a guy came to me in this church and said, God does not hate sinners. I said, really? I think the Bible actually says he does hate sinners. And this is where it got a little tricky. What is a doer of sin? What's that? When I do something, what, what is that? Is that a repetitive action? Is that occasional? Is that A doer does something so much that they become characterized by the very thing they do. Does that make sense? So if I'm a talker, if I talk a lot, I do a lot of talking. What would you expect me to do when I come to your home? Dominate the conversation. Why? Because I do talking. Therefore, I'm characterized by talking. What does the doer of sin do? Unrepentant patterns, practicing of sin. And what does God look upon? How does God look upon that person? He hates that. Because when they do that, what are they really saying? God, I hate you. I'm going to do it my way. Psalm 711. Psalm 711. God is a what kind of judge? Righteous judge. And this is terrifying. It goes on to say a God who has indignation or anger every day. Every day. Why is God angry? Because in his holiness and righteousness, he looks down upon earth and what does he see? Does he see men, women, and children responding to who he is with love and and worship and obedience? What does he see? Unrighteousness and wickedness. Even within the church for which he sent his son to die. And he gets angry. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, and here's the distinction. Can the wrath of God be on Christians? That's a trick question. Can a Christian be under the wrath of God? Yes or no? Okay, we have a yes. Anyone else? What do you think? What does the blood of Christ save us from? The wrath of God. Can we be under divine punishment? Absolutely, because what does the Father do to the Son that he loves? He disciplines. But we can't be under the wrath of God. So who is under the wrath of God? It's the one who disbelieves. That's what John is saying. If you believe in the Son, you have what? Eternal life. You are are not under that wrath. But if you reject Christ, if you are in disobedience, what are you under? The full indignation and anger and wrath of God. And what is the tense of that verb? It's present tense active, meaning it is now fully upon you as an unbeliever. The wrath of God is on you fully, actively. It's like that peanuts. You guys remember the peanuts? Who was the guy that walked around and had the little cloud around him? Remember that? What character was that? I can't remember. Was that Linus? I always get that one mixed up with the dust cloud one. I get those mixed up. Just imagine that is the wrath of God. And everywhere you go, it's over you. It's on you. And that's what the word of God says. Unbelievers are under. How does God feel about sin? Can he overlook it? Can he just... 
turn a blind eye to his anger and his wrath? Answer, no. If God's love overlooked sin and canceled wrath and punishment, he would cease to be perfect, holy, and just. Because after all, in Genesis 3, 3, what did he promise Adam and Eve? If you eat the fruit, you shall surely have a tummy ache. Is that what he said? Ah, my tummy hurts. Mommy, my tummy hurts. What did he say? You shall surely, what? Die. And what is the wages of sin? It's death. And who has sinned? All of us. All of us. So God's wrath abides on the sinner. And sin demands punishment. Therefore, redemption from sin is really all about divine justice. You think, well, Chris, how does God accomplish this justice? Well, let's look at three aspects of Christ's sacrifice. If he really is the only sacrifice, let's look at how Christ's sacrifices accomplishes the divine justice of God. First of all, A, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. And by this, I I simply mean that Christ became the substitute in our place. He replaced us. Mark 10.45 says Jesus gave his life as a what? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a what? As a ransom. For many. What is a ransom? Well, we know what a ransom is because it's a popular theme in Hollywood and cowboy movies and, you know, a ransom. Well, I know what a ransom is. It's a price paid to redeem a slave or a prisoner. Sometimes a ransom is is what I pay to my wife when I give her money to go buy a dress because, you know, I'm in the doghouse and trying to get out of that place and... Does that ever happen, honey? Maybe not. Well, that's what a ransom is. And there are some in the church who believe that this ransom is actually paid to Satan. That is heresy. Satan is not the one who's holding the keys of the prison of sin. Who is it? Who's the one whose wrath and anger and indignation burns every day towards sin? It's God. So who does the ransom go to? Who is it paid to? It's paid to God. It's paid to appease his wrath, his anger. And what does he purchase? It's Christ in our place. It's Christ's life for ours. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.14, you can turn there. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. When Paul states that Christ, one died for all, In fact, this applies to Mark 10, too, because you have ransom for many. You have one died for all. What's the preposition? For. What does that mean? It means literally on behalf of or in place of. So when Paul says one died on behalf of or in place of all, what is he saying? He's saying one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for us. 
Christ's death became a substitute when he died on the cross as our representative. And this truth is at the heart of the gospel because only Christ could do this. See, this is the classic event in the movie where the, the, her- the hero goes up to the villain and says, take me in her place. And all four of my daughters go, oh. You know, it's that moment in the movie. He's, he's so nice. He's such a nice man. Offering his own life in place of theirs. Did Christ become our substitute, our ransom, because we were worthy? Because you're just such a good person. Did he do it because you deserved it? No. He did it to do the will of his father and he did it out of love. And he became our ransom. And this ransom cost something, didn't it? Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, Do you not know that you were, what, bought with a price? What was the price? Death? Blood? Paul says, therefore, as a result of that incredible cost, what should we do with our body all the days of our life? Because of Christ as our sacrifice, what should we do? Glorify God with your body. You were bought with a price. Don't waste your life. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. But secondly, in B, it was a penal sacrifice. Now, you know, I was a cop in Los Angeles, and one of the things I did in the police academy is I had to learn what they called the penal code. I didn't know what that was until I became a cop. Penal code is a code of laws concerning crimes and punishments. It was incredibly boring. I just wanted to go shoot stuff and tackle bad guys. And here I am learning about laws. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a cop. Give me a gun. See, this is the legal punishment for crimes committed. Biblically, when we are talking about this penal sacrifice... Biblically, it's the penalty required for breaking the law of God. If we break the law of God, what is the punishment? What is the penalty? Well, Christ bore our guilt. He took our judicial punishment when he died on the cross as our substitute. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're already there. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, Christ knew no sin. Why is that important? Why is it important that Christ was the sinless substitute? Because if he had sin, would his sacrifice have meant anything? That's like the sinner dying for the sinner. What did you accomplish? Just a lot more death. But he was sinless. In fact, that's what Hebrews 4.15 says. He was tempted in all things as we are, but without sin. He was sinless. So he was the sinless substitute. But second, God placed our sin on him so that in turn, his righteousness could be given to those who would repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. The easy way to say that, another way to say that is this. The worst of me was laid on him so that in turn, the best of Christ would be laid upon me. 
In fact, Steve Lawson calls this the glorious exchange of the cross. Where Jesus gets our sin and we get his righteousness. And again, if Christ wasn't sinless, this would never work. And understand something. It's not that Christ actually became sinful. Because there are people in the church that believe this, that teach this. Christ actually became a sinner. Could Christ ever become a sinner? No. He's 100% God and 100% man. There's no way. And if he had become a sinner, what would have happened to his sacrifice? Would it have satisfied the law? If you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. Sin brings death. It would have been worthless. So it's not that Christ became sinful, but rather that Christ was treated as if he was guilty of all of the sins that believers would ever commit. So God's justice was perfectly carried out when the punishment for our sin was placed on Christ and then his perfection was placed on us. In fact, we call this the doctrine of imputation. I just like saying that word, imputation. I would have named one of my kids imputation. Come here, imputation. Brianna, you would have been named imputation. Think about that. We would have imputed that name to you. Imputation. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 2.24. So when Christ, with Christ's death and the shedding of his blood, Christ alone propitiated, which means satisfied, the righteous anger of God toward those who believe, and satisfied God's holy anger and wrath toward, unrep- or toward repentant sinners. And this is why 1 John 2 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Terry Johnson says this, God forgives sinners without compromising justice by overlooking sin. See, if he had overlooked sin, it would compromise the divine justice of God. So Terry says, Because Jesus Christ died in our place, and thus satisfied divine justice. Which is a very simple explanation. And as believers, think about this. We're in great company, aren't we? Adam the fruit eater. David the adulterer. Peter the denier. Paul the persecutor. What's your worst sin? Don't tell me. The minute I said that, what popped into your mind? The worst sin you've ever committed. Some of you are like, well, how do I pick? The worst sins. How about that season of my life where I sinned a lot? How about right now? What's your worst sin? See, if you are in Christ, by faith alone in Christ alone, God takes your worst sin and sins. And what does he do with it? He puts it on Christ on the cross. Christ was treated as the greatest transgressor. He was treated as a murderer. He was treated as an adulterer, a liar, and a rebel. And Christ's best was placed on you and me. So Christian, as we contemplate the cross, as 
we think about the death of our Lord and Savior, dying and forsaken by His Father, let us never forget that it was, and I quote, damnation taken lovingly. That was John Duncan from the 1700s. When Christ took our sin, he took our damnation and he did it how? With love. It's the love of Christ. But see, thirdly, it was a complete sacrifice because it was the perfect Son of God as our substitutionary and penal sacrifice we have confidence that Christ's sacrifice was complete, meaning it was final, it was sufficient. It didn't need to be repeated or supplemented. Turn over with me to Hebrews 7. I'm going to go through this quickly. Hebrews 7, 26 to 27. The writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 7, verse 26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who is he talking about there? Who could that only be? The high priest of Israel? Ken Ramey? As holy and godly as he is? No, it's Christ. Verse 27, Who does not need daily, like those high priests... To offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Again, Christ, our perfect, blameless, exalted high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice how many times? Did it take three times? Four times? It's like a sniper. One shot, one kill. One shot, one kill. Christ died on the cross and he took our place. His sacrifice was complete. And unlike the priests under the old covenant who repeatedly offered up sacrifices for themselves and the peoples, I mean, just think about the visible reminder when you would walk in or around the temple during sacrifice. The blood, the gore that would pour down the streets, and if you've been to Israel, you, 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 you've been and you've walked on those streets and you're like, there's like little, little places in the cobbles for the blood to flow. And that blood would remind you, this is because of me. This is my sin. That should be my blood. Another animal, another goat. There, there's someone else's sin and their sin and their sin over and over and over and over. When was the sacrificial system ever done? When was it completed? When Christ died. the once-for-all, complete sacrifice on our behalf. This is why Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. Boy, that is victorious. It's finished. How many of us are trying desperately, even this side of the cross, even putting faith alone in Christ, how many of us are are just striving just to get right and clean and we're trying to do it in our own work and Jesus says, look, it's done, the sacrifice is complete, but it's in me. I spent most of my years in high school and college putting my faith and trust in Jesus and spiritual disciplines. 
Again, nobody taught me to do this. I was taught well. I mean, I had John MacArthur preaching to me all my life as a young kid. But somehow in my mind, I equated this idea that, that it was faith in Jesus and these things I had to do. Almost like I was putting them on the same weight. The sacrifice of Christ was complete. And just as he completely justifies us, what else does he do? He will sanctify us. That's his work. Because of Christ alone. Obviously, I'm cooperating with that. But it's because of the complete sacrifice of Christ. Jesus' sacrifice needs no supplementation or no addition. And so Christ's sacrifice was substitutionary. It was penal. It was complete. Well, so how does this truth help How did it help drive the Reformation? What can we learn today from this? Well, I just want to point out some things that happened in Luther's day. Again, this is totally contrary to the purpose and function of the Roman Catholic Mass as a sacrificial system. Offering and propitiation for our sin. In fact, I got on the Vatican's webpage. Even today, they still teach this. It is in bold print. They believe that when you partake of the body and the blood, the bread, and the wine, that it is actually a propitiation satisfying Christ's divine judgment. It is part of your salvation process. They say faith in Jesus, and in fact they have a a section that's the anathema section. In fact, that's that's what they said back in the, the, the councils over the years. Anathema! May you, may you rot and burn. May you, may you ignite. May you, you die a horrible death. Separated from God. If you say anything else but that the Holy Mass and Eucharist is propitiation for sins. They still hold this today. If Christ's death on the cross served as a complete once-for-all substitution on our behalf, why must we come to an altar? Why must we regularly partake of Christ's body and blood as if we have to re-sacrifice Christ over and over and over again? In the doctrine of the Mass, of Eucharist, denies the finality and sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Second application. Well, the Reformers rejected the idea of purgatory. I already talked a little bit about purgatory. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to live and then to die. Talking about the finality of death. There is no in-between. There is no place that you go when you die. And what, what the Catholic Church teach, taught then and teaches now is basically that Christ's death paid for, for the penalty of your sins, but it didn't take care of the punishment of your sins. Therefore, that's why there's all these works and all these good things that you have to do. So it's faith in Jesus, but the way that you get all of the stored up, they call it the merits of Christ. The way you get these merits of Christ is, is by doing and earning. You can't buy an indulgence, you can't, you, you, but basically you have to do good things and, and pray and, and go to Mass and participate in the sacraments and have, have a, a divine heart and, and be a part of the Catholic Church. And there's all these things that they want you to do. And the idea is that because when you die... 
even though your sins have been paid for in Jesus, the punishment has not been taken care of, you have to go to this place called purgatory, where in that season, pain and suffering, hell-like environment, will burn the guilt and the sin from your life. And if you do enough good merits here, then that will cut off. It's like, you know, sentence reduced for good time. That's what they still believe today. The reformer said, no! If Christ's sacrifice was complete, if it was penal, if it was substitutionary, how can there be a place where you go? If all of the sin was put on Christ once for all, how can you say that there's still some kind of remaining sin left over that has to be purged in this place called purgatory? And therefore, purgatory is not a biblical truth. It comes from man-made tradition. They use scripture, they use verses to support it, but it's not biblical. If it were biblical, Christ alone, his sacrifice would not be enough. Because that's the whole point of purgatory. Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough. The reformer said no. And if you've ever been to Rome in our day, if you visited the Lateran church where the sacred stairs are, Besides the staircase, the sacred stairs, these are supposedly the stairs that Christ climbed when he went and appeared before Pontius Pilate. And they took them and put them in Rome. And there's a bulletin on the wall that tells you exactly how many indulgences you gain by going up that set of stairs on your knees and reciting the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and so on and so forth. On your knees. And it says, if you do this this many times, you get these many indulgences, and those indulgences mean that you get this much time off of your sentence in purgatory. That is today, just like it was then. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all over the world that believe this today. And of course, thirdly, they rejected the sale of indulgences where a person could purchase the benefits of the treasury. In fact, I, was, I had the privilege to go to Geneva, and in the museum there I got to take a picture of one of the indulgences, and it basically looks like a diploma. And it's got the Pope, this is Pope Leon Twelfth. I was going to bring a picture of it, and I forgot, sorry. And uh, basically it was, it was ornate, it was beautiful. And it was like, if you had that on your wall, that was like, you are not going to purgatory. Reformers rejected this. Faith alone and Christ alone, we receive the righteous merit of Christ through no personal effort, no good work. In fact, there was an article in The Guardian 2013 where the Pope basically said, if you can't attend this world conference in Rio de Janeiro, if you can get on my Twitter account, and if you can get on my Facebook account, and if you can get online uh, through the radio or internet and watch and, and follow all of the things, then you will receive an indulgence through social media. It was kind of big. It's like, wow, the Pope is getting like modern. That was 2013. This is still happening. Christ alone means that he is the only savior. He's the only sacrifice. But thirdly, it also means he is the only mediator. He's the only mediator. Again, a mediator is a person who intervenes between two parties to resolve a conflict or to ratify a covenant. 
And if I am a sinner separated from God by the great chasm of my sins, how can I receive the benefit of Christ as Savior and sacrifice? God in His holiness is on this side. In fact, I used to use this illustration at Shipley's Donuts with my girls. Daddy-daughter date, here's the gospel 101. Donut pile, donut pile. This is where we are, the sinners. Donut hole, hey, I'm a sinner. And this is where God is. La, holiness. Bigger pile of donuts. I would use donuts to explain this. And what's in between? The great chasm of our sin separating us. Well, how do you get from here to here? As my girls are eating, you know, heaven and... What's the picture? Can you try really hard? Can you jump? Can you do enough good works in your own effort? Is Is it, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm doing all these things? What's the hope? There is no hope. Who's going to plead my case before God? Who, who's going to ensure that I receive the merit of Christ? I mean, can I go directly to a holy God for forgiveness and salvation? Or do I have to somehow jump across by good works? Again, Romans 3.10. How many people are righteous in this earth? There is none. Not one. Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Do I have to go through a priest? I mean, I mean, is there some kind of religious system that I have to follow? Is it Jesus and the church? I mean, the Catholic Church teaches that Peter got the keys handed down. Peter got the keys, he handed them down, and every pope after Peter has the authority of the church, the priesthood. And through the priesthood, you can be made right with God. Is that how it is? Should I go to dead saints for meditation? For help, for intercession on my behalf? I had so many Albanian friends that were Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, or Albanian Orthodox, they called themselves. And they all had a patron saint. It was a little thing they wore around their, their, on a necklace or a ring or something. And whenever they got in trouble, whenever they got hurt, they would pray, just like Martin. Help me, St. Anne. Help me, St. Joseph. Help me. It's everywhere today. Who is our only hope? Well, turn me to 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. Don't worry, I'm picking up. I'm going fast. It's like, how do you cover Christ alone in one message? 1 Timothy 2.5, we know this passage. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. How many mediators are there between God and men? What does it say? One. Good math. Stephen, you get an A. This is exclusive, Chris. How can this be? Yeah, it is. But this is intolerant. Are are you saying Oprah's wrong? Yes, I am. There is one mediator between us and God, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the reason why so many have been burned at the stake and been tortured and been martyred because they said it's only Christ. He is our mediator. And they said, well, we don't like that, so we're going to kill you. And they died. Christ alone saves us. It's not Christ and sow a seed for blessing. You ever turn on the TBN and seen that? Oh, I can only watch that for like five minutes. It makes me so angry what they're promising people. Believe in Jesus and sow a seed. 
and you'll receive hundredfold. What is that message? Jesus plus giving us money brings what? Blessing, prosperity. Is that alive and well today? Absolutely. And it's impacting the evangelical church. I wish I had time to give some examples. I don't. I've got to move on. It's not Christ and trying really hard to be a better Christian. Even faith, if it's not rooted in Christ, can become a work that we can try and and reconcile and secure our salvation with God through our own faith. And our faith is really focused on us doing things to try to get right with God. We can say the right words and go through the right motions, but our faith is not rooted in Christ as our mediator. Christ, the perfect spotless lamb, stands between two hostile parties, God and man. Of course, Colossians 3, 6 says, the wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. So what is a mediator? Well, a mediator must be impartial to both sides. It's it's one who comes and tries to reconcile two parties. And Jesus had to be impartial to both sides. I had a friend who had a 17-year marriage, incredibly difficult marriage, was going through a divorce. Uh, If I had gone to him, I did not. If I had gone to him and said, hey, brother, I am hurting for you. You know, I'm a trained counselor. I'm a pastor, and I love you. Can I come counsel you and your wife? What do you think he would have said? Yes, finally, someone on my side. Woo-hoo, you're going down now, missy. And what would she be saying? Uh-uh. I am never getting in an office with you because whose side does she automatically think I'm going to take? My friend. And is that probably true? I would probably have a hard time being impartial. Wow, you are a witch. You're Jezebel. He said you were the Antichrist. I didn't realize how true that really is. Wow. I'm a good counselor. Come to me. (laughs) This is why Jesus had to be 100% God and 100% man in order to truly represent both God and man. In fact, even in our text, in 1 Timothy 2, what does it say? There is one God and one mediator, also God and man, men, the man who? Christ Jesus What's in a name? Christ Jesus. Why is it Christ Jesus? I looked it up in the Greek. It's got both. Christ Jesus. Christ describing him as God's anointed one, the Messiah. Emphasizing what? Humanity? No, deity. This is God. Jesus, the name given to him when? At his what? Incarnation and birth. Emphasizing what? His humanity. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. I told you it was going to get theological. The God-man. And he had to be the God-man. Why? Because he's the perfect mediator who alone is able through his mediation at the cross to bring together the two offended parties, sinful man and holy God. Because as man, we have a high priest who's what? Sympathetic with us. He knows our state. He knows our pain and our weakness and our temptation. He knows our plight. But as the God-man, what else does he know? 
The holiness and and beauty and righteousness of God. God, how can sinful man ever come to you? Well, he is God. He knows. And he knows what God demands. He is the perfect mediator. Because he knows God and he knows us. He is the God-man. It's a beautiful picture. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, being Christ, since he also lives to make intercession for them. Intercession, he's interceding for us. We can draw near to God directly because of Christ's meditation. So who do we, when we sin, who do we turn to? Are you turning to, to me or a counselor or your wife or who do you go to first? God. Because First John 1 says, if we confess our sins, what? He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only reason why God does that is because of the sacrifice of Christ. It's our substitute, is our mediator. Think about that. When we're in great need, who do we cry out to? We just got a medical report or just lost my job. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, draw near with confidence to what? The throne of grace to receive help in time of need. How can we do that? How can we, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace? It's because of Christ and the finished work. He's mediating for us, interceding for us. And when we're in danger of losing hope, have you ever been in danger of losing hope? Have you ever had spiritual depression? A difficult marriage, a rebellious child, difficult season in life, and you're, you're tempted to lose hope. And in that moment when you are tempted to lose hope, what does the word of God say? Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Because of this great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that's set before us, pushing aside the, endure, the things that, that, that cause us to stumble, the roadblocks in life. In verse 2, fixing our eyes on M.D. Anderson, the hope for my wife. And her, is that what the verse says? Fixing my, oh, my hope on that job, that next job. I know it's right around the corner. Fixing my hope on, on that boyfriend or that girlfriend. Fixing my eyes on, what does it say? Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Why? Because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Think about his example. Set your eyes on him alone so that when you're tempted to give up hope, verse 3 says, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. What a great passage. That's because Christ is our mediator. 1 John 2, 1 to 12, 1, uh, 1 John 2 verses 1 to 2 talks about Christ as our advocate. I don't have time to get into this section, but you can, can read that on your own. Christ is advocate using courtroom language. In fact, it actually talks about Jesus Christ as our lawyer. I know, you thought there would be no lawyers in heaven, right? You're like, lawyers don't go to heaven. Well, there is one practicing lawyer in heaven right now, and his name is Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad that he pleads on your behalf? 
And aren't you glad that he doesn't plead on your behalf with your good works and your life, but what does he use as the basis of his argument, pleading with God on our behalf? His finished work. That's what a mediator does. And Jesus is doing that for you and for me, to those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith in Christ alone. Well, there's a number of things that the reformers rejected. They rejected the priesthood, the the sacred order. It's called the sacrament of holy orders. That there was a distinction between the sacred and the secular. They basically said that priests were sacred and all the rest of you scum, secular. So priests were holy and righteous and all the rest of us not. They still believe that today. It's part of their seven sacraments. And the reformers said, no, if Christ is mediator, we don't need a priest. For me to go to God, Christ is enough. What's your job? Are you a plumber, housewife, student, electrician, lawyer? Apparently they can go to heaven. In fact, I know some very godly lawyers myself. What do you do? Because of the Reformation, you have hope in Colossians 3.23 that says what? Do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for men. We do this work for God, to glorify God. Why? Because Christ is our mediator. Reformers also rejected the idea of a priest standing between men and God through the sacrament of penance. Just imagine if you had to come to Kyle or Ken or me or one of the elders or Chris... Once a week, some of you once a day, <laughs> let's face it, <laughs> and confess your sins and tell us everything you did. Can you imagine that? Some of you are like, yeah, I used to be Catholic. I used to do that. If Christ is our mediator, why do we need to go to a man to confess our sin? Does the Bible tell us to confess our sin? Well, it does talk about sharing each other's burdens, sharing our struggles in James. But who are we supposed to confess our sins to? God. Why? Because Christ mediates for us. Practically, when the weight of my sin struggle drives me to despair or self-pity, I have a loving, patient mediator who is sympathetic, who understands my situation. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. Well, there's so much more I could say. I am way out of time. Just in conclusion, solus Christus, Christ alone, means that he is the only Savior, he is the only sacrifice, and he is the only mediator. And while there are still many today in the Roman Catholic Church, even the Eastern Orthodox Church, who would proclaim that we are saved through grace by faith in Christ, they still add the word and therefore making it a false gospel, a different gospel. Because the reformers boldly proclaim that Scripture alone points us to faith alone in Christ alone as the only hope for our salvation. And aren't you glad that your salvation is not up to you? What a relief. Christ did it all. Man, let's sing some more. Let's sing praise to the one who did it all for us. 
The reality is that everyone in this room, like Shelley, on that dark, snowy night, help me, Lord Jesus, help me, Lord Jesus. Some of you needed to be woken up. Or maybe Martin Luther in the midst of that storm. Everyone in this room has anchored your faith, your hope to something, to someone. I just want to ask you, have you placed your only faith, your only hope, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? Because he offers this salvation now. And I pray that this would be the day of your salvation May this be the day that we all cling to Christ alone, boldly proclaiming this message of hope and good news to the world around us. Amen.